as you're newly disillusioned, well, there's this constant fear like, oh shit, maybe I made the wrong decision. Uh, maybe they were right all along that it would be harder out here. And that's, that can have real moments of doubt. Hey everyone, welcome to part two of our conversation with Jeffrey Wallace. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to part one, which we released last week. In that episode, we dive into the specific beliefs of the Jehovah's Witness organization, along with discussing Jeffrey's book, Chronically Captive, and many other topics of psychology and its relationship to religious structures. In this continuation, we specifically dive into the topic of mental illness and the experiences many, including Jeffrey himself, have had when it comes to depression, anxiety, and understanding mental health within the Jehovah's Witness community. We're so grateful for all the work Jeffrey has done and continues to do. So with that said, enjoy the rest of our conversation. One thing that makes it really challenging is how, you know, spirituality really dovetails with psychological state and, and our well-being. And so I think the way that we were brought up and in the rhetoric, when we think about if somebody is well or doing good or is spiritually healthy, there's confusion there. The, the, the concept of somebody who is spiritually well really implies that they're sort of not in a place of conflict, that they are, you know, happy or joyful or have all these positive emotions. And so it's very difficult when you don't get a lot of information about mental health to separate the two and for the community to understand that, you know, there are times when we have to address mental health and we also have to address the spiritual aspects of mental health, but it really needs to be done in a professional way, not by uninformed the spiritual advisors or religious advisors. So there, you know, the, a lot of the discussion in the organization regarding health, uh, mental health in the past, there was a bit of a demonization of the field in that in the therapy room, there's this danger of being introduced to outside opinions and some of these secular voices, particularly humanist psychology, individualist psychology, which uh, encourages you to focus on your personal needs and balancing your self-concern with other concern, whereas the discussion in the organization was all about having a self-sacrificing spirit like the Christ did. Give, 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 just like the Christ did. Give, give, give. And of course, when you are operating under this condition of sort of guilt-based performance, then it really is a recipe for mental health challenges and burnout and things like that. Yeah, can you kind of elaborate more on the, you know, connection between, uh, and we we talked about this um, earlier on of just kind of that connection between, well, you know, if things are going good in your life, that means, you know, you're, you're following the doctrine well. And then if you're not, then that means bad things will happen. Um, can you kind of elaborate on just that kind of thought process and its connection with mental mental health? So if somebody is in conflict or somebody is having an episode of low mood or cannot show the joy of the spirit, then the common answer to that is increased activity. So more prayer, more personal Bible reading, more ministry, more association with your spiritual brotherhood. So that's the answer to any ills of mood. Dig deeper. And the challenge comes when, you know, episodes of low mood or perhaps even going to the point of depressive states are as a result of the conflict that's brought on because of the religious faith, either internal conflict or conflict with outside society, um, this cognitive dissonance. So now you get this uh, a real challenge because it's at the root of the negative mental state. 
But then the only answer that an inside member has to address the negative mental state is do more of what's making them ill to sort of gaslight themselves, not address their real experience as to what is wrong, but instead continue to ignore any personal conflict and dig deeper into the rhetoric, into the belief, recommit themselves to their mission and in the hopes of getting some relief from their suffering. So it, it really contributes to this bipolarity in individual members where you're depressed, um, you may have feelings of shame and worthlessness because you can't live up to the high standard, oh, you know, perhaps that is held. I shouldn't even say high standard. Let me just say the, the rules and the standards that are enforced to do with uh, sexuality or holiness or spirituality, all these things that can cause real shame, feelings of shame and worthlessness for being sinful. And the answer to that is this excited overactivity in the work of the mission. So then when you're in the collective group, when you're rubbing shoulders with other excited people who have now found this solution to their negative mental state, there's you know real excitement. And that's the other end of the, almost like the, the manic pole. So you, you start swinging between the state of, of low depressiveness, to overexcitedness of having found the solution again. And for those that are susceptible for these swings of, of mental state, which in my past, I was too. I felt that that was a really con- a real contributor to an imbalanced psychological state. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I've seen that a lot, experienced that myself too. With and, and I think that's the funny part where you realize, kind of once you once you start finding a better balance, that like, oh, it's kind of just like how many people around you are going through that. Are you know everybody's just contributing, mm-hmm. not everybody, but a majority are contributing to this false, you know, this excitement just to make, help make themselves feel better. And what do you, how do you, how would you say the group? Yeah, it's very artificial. Yeah. Yeah. How would you say the, uh, the group effect would be on that of, um, you know, it's cause it is this, that artificial happiness and then kind of creating the, this, this feeling of where you can't really be on your own. Even though you're supposed to be able to rely on God when you're on your own, it's it becomes this real lifeline just to be able to meet and see people. How would you say the effect of that is, or what would you say the effect? Well, actually, Ashton, I think you touched on it in a way that I haven't heard expressed before, but really resonates with me intuitively is that you don't have the ability to self-soothe because you are constantly relying on either the words of the organization by means of the printed page And we could extend this to other religious groups where we have a compulsive need for spiritual reassurance by means of rhetoric in moments of darkness, but then also perhaps by reaching out for others to reassure us on a path. Uh, And so there is no training in the art or science of aloneness and the peace of aloneness, self-soothing, separation, finding balance without codependency on others. And you mentioned like the social contagion, where if you're with a bunch of people that are excited, then you can be excited and forget that, you know, you're going to be by yourself again, and you're going to need to reckon with these challenges that you're facing. And this is likely a problem of, of all groups that are supportive, you know, to the extent that we draw comfort from them, we must also be aware of the need to be able to self-comfort at times too, so that we can maintain our individuality from whatever group we're part of. Yeah, I think that's, um, I mean, it can start, it gets to the point of being dangerous because I think from my experience, there's that that feeling of it, it doesn't get better when you just rely on other people. 
you know, and so it's like this rot kind of continues to grow, especially with like, you know, real mental illness of every time you go back home, you feel a little bit worse kind of thing. And, and I guess from, from what you've seen, especially in, I'd say like when it affects somebody's like spiritual life and especially when spirituality is so on the, the forefront of their mind, what, what would you say kind of happens as people continue down this path of not getting better? And, you know, like what, what, what's the breaking point? What, what happens to people as they go down that road? Well, I suppose I can't talk for anybody but myself. And like, I don't really have any data in terms of what's happening in the organization as a whole. The sense that I get is that some people can really get locked into this uh, depressive state. What, you know, my history is that I, I did constantly deal with shame based depression. And it wasn't until I deconstructed the concepts of, first of all, the organization's rules, but second of all, concept of sin, confession, salvation, the ransom sacrifice of Christ, the needing of a God to quell any feelings of less thanness, and really recognizing the illusory nature of sin is, is just very liberating because now there's no longer a need to ask for forgiveness. There's no longer a need to quake in fear under the Almighty in hopes that he will find you approved. And that was at the root of, I think, a lot of my mental health, because it's this hamster wheel. It's, it's scrupulosity. That's religion-based. It's, it's a sort of religion-based OCD, where you, your fear is of your badness or your wickedness, your disapproval, and then the compulsive behavior is the religious activity, prayer, Bible reading, you know, personal study. So that was certainly was the case for me. It escalated for me to the point that probably six to nine months of, of everyday suicidal ideation, intrusive, violent ideation. I'm pretty honest about that in the book too, homicidal ideation. This is just a really extremely fearful state where you no longer can trust your own thoughts. You have no longer have any way of dealing with blasphemous thoughts or irreverent thoughts or evil thoughts, so you think, that come into your mind. And there, you end up in this, this vicious place of fear where not only are you fearful of these thoughts because they're either sinful or they're wrong, or they could get you expelled from the community and separated from your entire support system, or the other side of the fear is that if you are to go out and request help from a non-believer, as in somebody in the professional mental health field, well, then now your actual, your faith, what you are holding on to as the one thread of, of support in your life is now challenged because now you're requesting an outsider for help. And um, what actually helped me was connecting with a therapist who was religious trauma informed and knew of the situation of, of the delicacies there of helping to ease the fear and moderate the viewpoint. So that I, I could start finding that, you know, a place of stability for myself. But that, that state of fear is a significant contributor when somebody comes through religious trauma, when they're disillusioned, um, that can definitely be overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, that's so relatable for like, it's crazy hearing you talk about that. I'm like, man, I, uh, that like, it touches a, a spot that, you know, it's, you feel, I think because so many people feel alone with that, you know, and they're like, it, it is crazy. And I'm curious I'm always curious how it happens with the, um, cause I feel like there's such a fracture in your like psyche, you know, of, cause you all that time spent to like feel better is like, it's weird. Cause it's like, it's not you who's in it. It's this person trying to 
trying to have that excitement. It's this person trying to show that they're happy. So that way other people think, so you're spending all this time trying to make other people think that you're happy without making yourself feel happy. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And then you, you're stuck with these awful thoughts and it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, yeah, no, go go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's like, it's a charismatic Christianity, right? Which is where the preacher man comes up on stage and, and motivates and, you know, whips you up, gets you excited so you can go back on your way. And, you know, there's this thing, I'm sure you're aware of it. When you go to like a three-day convention, Jehovah's Witnesses go to these three-day conventions. They're sort of eight hours long. Um, and before the days of COVID, these were among 7,000 people in, in a big arena, what have you. And at the end of day three, uh, you have this renewed sense that now you can please God. This re- renewed sense that, you know, now I've learned something new. I've been motivated. Uh, these leaders, speakers have told me that I can please God with my actions. And you set these new standards and, and these new commitments, like a, a new commitment to a diet or something. Uh, and I'm going to do it right this time. I'm going to get it right. And then you go back and then sure enough, life hits. And if you haven't established a good habit in 23 days, well, next thing you know, you've, you've failed again. And now it's it's all on you to hold that failure as your own. And so th- there's this artificialness. A- again, you got to have the kingdom smile when you go to the kingdom hall, everything's got to be okay. And um, particularly because of the fear of expulsion, public shaming, some, there's, there's also a lot of people who, who struggle with, with guilt because they know that something that they've done has transgressed one of the requirements. In the book, I talk about uh, sexual repression of uh, homosexual ideation and uh, masturbation, things like this that are normal human processes, but they are so threatening. And so then the individual puts so much effort into controlling these thoughts and behaviors that that just renders the psyche exhausted. There is, you know, it's, that's really a state there that, that can contribute to mental illness, particularly for those who are genetically and biologically prone. Yeah. When you mentioned the point about like self-soothing, um, I feel like that's definitely like an important point to really highlight because I think when you're in an environment where there's so many aspects of who you are that have to be suppressed, right? Maybe it's homosexuality, maybe it's just your sexuality in general, right? And so there's aspects that are very normal just to the human life that if you're suppressing those, I think it would often cause a very confusing environment, you know, because if you're, if you're not able to know who you are (laughs) innately, who you are, then how are you supposed to self-soothe? Right. And then you get into this like reliant environment where, and now all of a sudden too, like you mentioned, you've got not just the fear and guilt of, well, you know, if I am to sin or am I am to fall short, I could get, you know, shunned from my community. But then on top of that, also dealing with salvation. Right. And I think that that's where a lot of religions get really messy is when your act like human actions determine what happens to you in the afterlife. That's a lot of pressure to put on humans, you know? And so I don't know. I think that just, it's an interesting point you make about self-soothing because I do think that at least from my experience, I've seen with people that have struggled with mental illness and religious environments, it often comes from this like self-suppression of identity and just being very confused about who you are outside of just the organization. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're you're right on the money there. Self repression, it does, you know, matters of sexuality, also matters of creativity. Because if you know your sort of normal human curiosity or exploration, um, intellectually too, 
you know, bumps into walls that you cannot transgress, whether this is um, the natural sciences. So much has been learned in the natural sciences that obviously, you know, conflicts with a literal interpretation of the Bible. And whereas some mainstream Christian churches have sort of stretched the rules and and sort of reinterpreted the scripture or bent the rigidity of the scripture, um, Jehovah's Witnesses haven't done a very good job of that. Like there's a real um, traditionalist view of the scripture. And so, you know, uh, for me, it was very much just sort of intellectual pursuits that as I learned and explored the things that I was interested in, human behavior, psychology, social justice, things like this, you just hit a wall where you're like, oh, that's a disallowable thought. I can't, I can't go there anymore. And, And then eventually you're hitting up to so many walls that you are, you know, you're just in a locked state. You're, you're turning inward on yourself as opposed to that natural expansion of the human mind, curiosity, and the bifurcation of human knowledge, that, which leads to creative peace. And there's so, so, many, so much of that fighting against that is exhausting. Yeah, I think that is, that is a huge piece of it. Um, because I think, uh, you know, with like the, the Buddhist concept of yin and yang being not just good, not, you know, light and dark, but chaos and order, you know. And so you're so focused on this order. And it's, I remember, you know, I was younger, just like trying to write songs or whatever. And I just like, I'm just, I'm not the creative type that could just make something super fun, like all the time, you know, like, oh, yeah, I just, you know, it's just going to be super happy, you know, we're all going to laugh about it. But like, usually for me, creativity comes from more of that chaos, from more of that, that darker spot. And I think for so many people in that boat, that's a hard place to be because you want to express yourself and you're told that that kind of expression is a bad thing, even though in the real world. And I think for humans, it's such a beautiful thing to be able to explore this chaos that we have inside ourselves instead of just being afraid of it all the time. Well said, because there, that, that peace in the darkness, that spirituality and sadness that we experience when we cry at dark music, when we are touched by narrative accounts of human sadness there's definitely a place for that and if you're in a perfect organization if you are the perfect people of god and if you have a wonderful future ahead of you in a new system under the kingdom of god then there is no place based on that theology for such darkness um, when in reality when you're really dipping into you know the entropy of the universe and the, and the nothingness of existence, meaningfulness of existence, there is a sadness there. There's a loss there as we, as we mature, as we cast away our sort of illusory hopes of a more immature mind. And the creative process is dipping into that darkness and it's very much restricted. And you, you touch on something too, the entropy too, which I'm fascinated with in some of the research on what psychedelics does to the mind and the default mode network. Uh, where it has been said that's where the sort of I lives. And there are there's some research being done now about how some of these spiritual mystical experiences sort of infuse entropy into the mind, where our minds have sort of in, in this state of constant control and order, bringing order to an entropic universe. But to increase entropy into our psychological state too, has a way of balancing us out. Of course, we were raised with Jehovah's Witnesses with the thought that God is not one of disorder. He's not a God of disorder, but he's a God of peace, as if order, order in the home, order in the thought, order in religion, order in the organization itself 
is indication of godliness rather than including entropy, including disorder into the way that we think as we create homeostasis in our psychological state. I think that that is a really good point because I think the that or you know only like order and peace being the same, like you can only have peace with order. I think that really breaks down project when Joe Joe's when as it goes when it's when there's a tragedy. You know, I think that there is a real hard people really I mean they sometimes people seem okay, but I think from my experience and what I've seen, people really struggle around that a tragedy, whether it's a loss of a loved one or even I want to also face tragedies of when they lose somebody's disfellowship, which is, I know, can feel worse than, you know, somebody dying. And I mean, what would you say is the, the kind of effect that happens when people face a tragedy? Well, there's some talk about how, even I think the Apostle Paul mentions it, we do not grieve as the nations do. And so that's interpreted in Jehovah's Witness world. That, for example, death, we don't grieve on as the nations who have no hope. We have a hope, but we are more faithful than everybody else. So we don't grieve as they do. And so then when people are naturally sad at loss, there's a feeling like at some point, I need to be getting over this because I have faith in God. Now that's been moderated a little bit in the literature I've noticed recently, but it's, you know, it rumbles underneath that we're supposed to be joyous, happy people, that we have a faith in, you know, in the new system. Uh, Frankly, my experience is though, and I think for others, when faced with deep, deep tragedy is when all those sort of illusory faiths evaporate and we are stung with sort of the reality of loss and the reality of death and, and what that's like. And so, you know, spiritual expression it is, is very comforting when it allows for exploration of that pain and the full manifestation of that pain so that full recovery can be made. And when you, when you mentioned disfellowshipping, it is very much worse than death. A disfellowshipped person is alienated not only from their family, but from God. And particularly if someone were to go into the realm of apostate, and basically apostasy boils down to somebody making a personal expression of their ethical concerns that is in conflict with the organization's rhetoric. Well, for a family member, that's worse than death. I mean, it's no hope of future. It's any hope that they cling to for an afterlife or personal religious conviction is lost for that person because they they are worse than dead and nobody can mourn for that it, well, let's just say it can be difficult for people to feel embraced as they mourn for the loss of somebody who has left quote unquote left jehovah yeah i, I kind of want to like dive deeper into that from just you know your perspective as you know having leadership within you know local congregation you know for someone who has a family member that's disfellowshipped right like how What's kind of the elder's response to that, right? Because on some level, I feel like they're not supposed to openly grieve. <laughs> like, like how, how does that balance work, right? Where like clearly, you know, you, you mentioned shunning is almost worse than death because it's almost like a death, but the person's still alive. Um, so, you know, how does the elders kind of navigate that with someone who would be expressing grief from having a family yeah. fellowship? I think most show understanding of the loss and then attempt to offer comfort by reminding the individual of how they are being loyal to Jehovah by shunning their disfellowship relatives. So Jehovah sees what you're doing here, brother, sister. And Jehovah will remember this loyalty. And by the way, you know, the scripture says that 
godly sadness leads to a turning around and a repentance. So if you want to see your loved one again, then uphold this shunning policy. And that, that can give you hope that you will see your loved one again, and they will come back and you'll be able to share life with them now and in the coming new system of things. So they, they recognize the sadness involved, but they, they will actively encourage the um, remaining family member to shun. Now, there's also unspoken knowledge, of course, that if you shun, you will, if you do not shun, you will be shunned. Um, you could get called before the elders and have to, you know, defend yourself for having had contact with your loved one. And this, I think for disillusioned Jehovah's Witnesses, particularly those who have been elders and been involved in judicial processes, is a big part of their trauma. Moral injury, PTSD, I'm trying to make that connection in the book. Moral injury is when you sort of come to a full realization of your involvement in human suffering. So this was kind of discovered in drone pilots in wars. They were having PTSD, even though they were never in threat for their life. They were in the safety of a bunker on U.S. soil, but they were flying drones and causing death. So why are they having PTSD, right? Well, researchers found out that it was because they still had to reckon with the fact that they were taking lives and that they were perhaps violating some deeply held, deeper even than the ideology of uh, nationalism. Uh, They were having to reckon with that, and it was traumatic. And so I think this is a, a very important factor for awakening Jehovah's Witnesses is they may realize, well, I've created disfellowship. I've, I've torn families apart by enforcing disfellowshipping. I have actively brought people into the organization and kind of encouraged them to distance themselves from family, or I've encouraged them to refuse blood medicine for their children or refuse blood medicine for themselves. Um, that's a significant element of the trauma of awakening and uh, coming out of uh, illusionment with the organization. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even, I mean, there's, there's, I think for me, limited amounts of that kind of uh, guilt. You know, I, I don't think there's a few people I affected, but I can't imagine uh, being someone being in more of a leadership position, that, that feeling of what, you know, what have I done? It's so similar to when I see parents who've left, they're like, oh, I shunned my kid for X amount of years. Like, how could I do that to my own child? They kind of realize the neat, how needless that is. Mm-hmm. But I think that that goes to, I mean, there's a couple, uh, that idea of what people go through when they shun somebody it's there's a couple manipulation tactics I've seen used that I think really affect people. One is the when it's using now the dramatizations, I think is is very, very scary where it's I, I remember looking back and there was this one dramatization that was very focused on the daughter being disfellowshipped and the parents, you know, work to shun her and stuff. But the hard thing is it's they really try to blur as hard as they can the uh whether it's based on a true story or whether it's just a dramatization, you know, this, this, they very much blur that line. It seems like of, you know, they, it's a, it's a, it's fake. It's their made up story, but they, they frame it as like, it's a documentary reenactment of something that happened. And that's a scary level of um, trickery. you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is. It is blatant. The videos are blatantly propagandist. Let's just put that out there. It's obviously to influence opinion. And you're right. 
you're right on the money there with how it creates a feeling that you get lost. And sometimes in the three-day conventions, for example, this is a story that's carried out throughout the convention. So there is a sense there that you've sort of lost yourself, that you're, you're actually watching something that is real. And so all of the actions, for example, that the non-witness takes in the video are assumed to be emblematic of outsiders in general. And there's, there's no questioning from that because most insiders don't have a lot of interactions at an intimate level with outsiders. So they assume that that's in fact how outsiders are and how they think and what, what they're trying to do to dissuade them from their faith. But it really, it really gets in. It, it really feels, it, it plays on the emotions. And there, there is a danger to get, to get lost in that. Video is very powerful uh, with the emotional music behind it, et cetera. And I, I remember the one you're talking about, you know, the video of a family whose daughter had been disfellowshipped and she continues to reach out, but they loyally and faithfully reject her advances, her phone calls, her text messages. And, you know, by the last day of the convention, she's back in the organization. There are re, uh, sort of um, dramatized scenes of the Paradise Earth and the new system where the daughter is now there and the family is reunited. And that's a, a strong hope that many have. And it gets in the way of real world reconnection and, and healing for families. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, especially with that drama, uh, basically saying that she came back, like it was because that they ignored her that. Yeah, that's right. Is it, and it is, it is literally termed uh, an act of love. This fellowshipping is an act of love by Jehovah. Jehovah loves those whom he disciplines. What would you say, because this is actually something I really um, don't know much about, uh, but because especially since, you know, when I woke up, I was out, you know, so I don't, I didn't really get that inside view while being awake, you know, and what, what would you say the effect is on the people who, artist fellowship but you know the people who do decide to go back have you seen what's kind of the mental effect that you've seen it take on them well as in the case of those sort of measures in in other frameworks of thought control particularly the ones that i reference in robert lifton's work throughout the book it works for many people um, they look back on the time that they were disfellowshipped as correction that they needed, that they will never go back to their old ways. And they are so almost appreciative of the arrangement. That's a scary sort of power of thought reform and the ability to, of course, of persuasion. I also know some who are able to sort of see through that. I mean, they sort of like come back, but just sort of organizationally, they come back so they can maintain relationships with their family and then drift away after that. Um, I've also seen some who, even in their recommitment to the mission, um, are sort of traumatized and triggered by the experience and deal with anxiety moving forward. and are afraid to be alone and suffer from, you know, some sort of PTSD type symptoms from that ostracization, even if it did happen for only a short period of time. Yeah. I think the short period of time thing, I think is interesting too, with that, because if you do your best and try hard, you can get back in about a year. I've seen it usually the the time, but then it's interesting because then there's consequences that last for, I believe, you know, up to five years after that, of not being able to do certain things in the organization, it seems as a 
reminder to them of what they've done for such a long period of your life. Yeah, they have to earn their earn their loyalty back to Jehovah, prove themselves. And and we have to remember too that like everything you get to do in the organization is a proof of God's blessing. So um, if you get to do 70 hours of, of preaching work every month, if you are deemed worthy of being called that, you know, they call it a regular pioneer, uh, then it's evidence of Jehovah's blessing. Or even if you just uh, get to give a little speech or a comment or a testimony at one of the larger assemblies or conventions, then that is indication that Jehovah has blessed you. And so that is all taken away, obviously, at this fellowshipping, and then one has to earn it back. So, you know, there, there's a sort of probationary period where maybe you're back in, but you can't give testimony at the congregation. You can't speak, um, sort of give expressions of your faith, and you can't hold privileges of, for example, handing somebody a microphone or something like that, which is deemed evidence of spirituality. Yeah, so so it's it's really impactful way of making individuals work really hard to get back in the favor of the brothers who are the elders who are making decisions. And again, because of the obfuscation of the elders decision making, it appears as if it is coming straight from Jehovah. When you get privileges back, you feel like, oh, wow, all these prayers of mine of repentance and eagerness to God now have paid off and God has blessed me. There's a real a significant difference between elders and lay witnesses. There is a real, as I say, a sort of obfuscation of what's going on by the elders that, that has an effect on the rank and file. I kind of want to cover a little bit more about like, you know, the basic survival needs for most people who get scholarships. Cause I feel like that also has to be, you know, a big reason of, you know, a push for people to come back. Like if you you have no college education, you have no network outside of the witness organization, you know, beyond just the like psychological trauma of losing your family and community, there's also just basic survival needs as well. Can you kind of just like elaborate a little bit more on your experience with that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my personal situation was that not only as I became delusioned, of course, I eventually made the decision to not allow this to happen to me, but at first, it was a threat, obviously, of losing my loving relationships, but also where I lived and how I made my income was directly tied up with the organization. So basically, living with a witness and earning money from a witness. So if I were to overtly speak my disapproval, you know, this is like now I'd be losing my means of income and the roof over my head, right? So a lot of that was a bit of catastrophizing on my part at the time, I'll admit, but for others, it is not. For others, that really, they are disempowered, financially disempowered. And I think that that has a lot to do with the PMO situation. I think it has a lot to do with recapitulation to the organization after one has become disillusioned because, well, I, I can't go out there and earn income. I'm, I'm stuck where I'm at, either, you know, particularly like teenagers or, you know, people who haven't sort of struck out on their own yet. Yeah, they're they're at the mercy of those around them. And then eventually it gets kind of a little too hard to be stubborn about your beliefs and you start looking for the good in your situation and you start looking for the good in your organization. Well, this is my situation. There's no getting out of it. So, well, maybe it's not so bad, you know, and uh, that can <laughs> that can really affect people's decisions to actually move on and sort of get get liberty from the situation. 
Yeah. So there's, there's a lot financially involved. And for, for some that are adults, when they become disillusioned, as you say, they may have have missed out on significant opportunities for financial empowerment, as you say, like education. There is uh, the concept of like the dichotomy between materialism and spiritualism that is heavily emphasized in the organization. In fact, I was always under the impression that it was like the big problem of Western congregations, that they were being sucked out of their faithfulness to God because of job opportunities and bosses that made them work too much, et cetera. So the extremely faithful will really reject opportunities for financial advancement and choose a life of simple poverty, which again, then makes them sort of even more subject to the organization because they look to their fellow members for support, either financially or with practical matters. Yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely testify to that. That is probably the hardest. I would, I would, I would say that is actually the hardest part of getting out. And then one, mm-hmm. because it's, it's this kind of weird thing of um, you have to figure out how to survive financially and physically before you can even tackle your mental health issues that have come from, from that. And I think that is, and that is really hard work. And I would say that is, uh, that alone can make the, the world, the, re- the world or the real world seem awful because you can't afford to do anything nice. You know, you're, wow. for, for me, I was literally like my diet, what consisted of just like rice and eggs and peanut butter. That's like all wow. I could afford, you know? And it's yeah. like, I worked for a witness, but he was, you know, let me keep my job, but it was a hard job. And then, you know, also with that, it's like still, even though I got to still work with them, it definitely the work quality, you know, was less enjoyable, especially as I decided to, as they could tell that I wasn't going back. And so that year was hard, but yeah, I think that's really, that's a huge, it's even worse for the mental health when people get out and they realize, like, man, I can't, this is a hard role to make it in with just, you know, very little experience, you know? Yeah. Well, that's astute. You know, some of those uh, feelings that I think we're all sort of aware of as we mature and figure out our personal circumstances, which is like, man, the world's hard. It's tough making a living and it's, and it's difficult to make it on our own. I mean, these are realities. And then, you know, on the path towards the financial empowerment, personal empowerment, you know, we sort of have to reckon with these things and make our way and find our place in the world to where we're not, you know, sort of embittered by them. But as you experience those, as you're newly disillusioned, well, there's this constant fear like, oh shit, maybe I made the wrong decision. Uh, Maybe they were right all along that it would be harder out here. And that that can have real moments of doubt. And, And these fears, right? Fears, this is what we know about neuroscience, right? Our limbic system works a whole lot faster than our uh, frontal cortex, right? So the emoting part of our mind is much quicker on its feet than is the um, intellectualized part of our mind. So we feel this fear, oh no, I've made a mistake, even though we have no data to suggest that anything that we learned was true or was based in reality. But it can cause some to question their decision and, and run back, yeah. It's, and the other thing is, and Winnell talks about this, Marlene Winnell in, in her work on religious trauma, talks about, frankly, the immaturity of people who come out of close religious groups because we have very little experience dealing with um, the culture of outsiders, right? So you're in an environment where we uh, all sort of ignore the conflict. Um, people are perhaps, Jehovah's Witnesses are sometimes afraid of asserting themselves, bringing conflict into discussions, disagreeing. There's this sort of placating of everything, spiritual concepts and love and peace, et cetera. 
Well, you get out in the earning world and you realize that's only one side of the story to human existence. There's a very animal part of human existence because we're all just primates where we have drives and we have to aggress against aggressors and protect ourselves against aggressors. And we need to have social capital and we have to have what we need to provide for our offspring, et cetera. So these are very fresh and new, whereas individuals, perhaps outsiders who perhaps were introduced to these concepts in earlier years, were able to muddle their way through these concepts and figure out what it looks like for them as adults. Sometimes adults come into the situation where we're much more rigid in our cognition because we haven't been learning and experiencing. You come out of the organization and now you're in the situation where this all comes upon you at once. And that's a real danger for, for mental health outcomes because, and, and things like suicide and depression, anxiety. Another aspect of that that I think is a huge importance with mental health is building community too and finding, you know, friendships and, and people. And I'm curious, what would you say is the problem? Because there's, there's, there's so many issues with how, say, witnesses make friends with other witnesses, you know, and how that like really doesn't set people up for being able to find community uh, in the real world. Yeah, there's a, um, a sort of intimacy that comes uh, between Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it could be seen as one of the, dare I say, sort of spiritual wonders of what happens in collective organizations. But you do go across the world and you say, hey, I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Look at my no blood card in my wallet. And you can be invited into somebody's home. You are immediately accepted and you feel comfortable sharing some of the deepest, most vulnerable parts of yourself because you're protected in this brotherhood of the faith. You know, my take is that genuine friendships sort of take a little bit more work than that. There's like mutual trust involved. It's like a slow sharing a little bit from you, a little bit from me. And then over time, sort of a confidence grows to where perhaps a friendship goes into the place of emotional intimacy. Those are really strong friendships. But another element of religious trauma is betrayal trauma. So the idea that you lent your trust to humans who you felt had your best interest in mind and they betrayed you. They didn't give you the full information or they lied to you. And that can become something that you roll out to humans in general, right? So I've been so hurt by people that now I will no longer trust people. I'm not going to let myself get hurt again. So I'm going to have my hypervigilance on whenever I'm with people, hypervigilance to manipulation the hypervigilance to uh, yeah, losing yourself among other people and a lack of ability to trust again. So I can make it very hard for people to create relationships. Another is that some who really crave that emotional attachment of community will reactively join themselves to a group that perhaps is not in their best interest. And they will sort of really reactively leave the organization and then you know, throw themselves into the arms of another group, which may or may not be uh, healthy for them. You know, there's a sort of concept I've been reading about in the <laughs> anti-cult literature of like, like cyclical cultism, where, where people sort of jump from one group to the next one without sort of dealing with those insecurities, deep psychological insecurities that were getting filled by the cult group. They run to another one to get it filled again, instead of doing that personal work. Well, especially to your experience has always kind of been within this like group think mentality. 
you know, like it's, I think it's very hard for just human, just with how human nature works to go from, you know, everything is about this collective identity to all of a sudden now you're supposed to be your own individual person. Uh, and that's across like all religions, right? Like I also see that as just like a, you know, non-denominational Christian. Like there is this weird, like, I don't know, like where you just meet another Christian and now all of a sudden you're supposed to have something in common, but you could be completely different type of people. And maybe I actually wouldn't be friends with that person, but I'm supposed to enjoy them because we think about one thing about humanity the same way. But, you know, I, and, and that goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier, which is like the pendulum swing, right? Where you go from one extreme to something else extreme, maybe it's not in religion, but, you know, we've seen a lot of people, you know, leave witnesses and go like heavily into atheism. And that is their identity now with atheist community groups and things like that. I think it's, I think it's hard to find individuality when you've never experienced that, you know, you have to work on that. Yeah, it really is. And if you ask a Jehovah's witness, let's say uh, an outsider at a place of employment, says to a Jehovah's Witness, you know, tell us about yourself. Um, Ashton knows this, like, what's first on the list? What would be the first thing that you tell them? You, you likely confess your faith. Yeah. Um, it is up at the top of who you are. Um, before family relationships, before any sort of other concept that you have associated with your identity. So to lose that really <laughs> is, is shocking. Who am I? You know, that's a lot of decisions at once. Um, because so much of your morality, concepts of good and bad is all tied up with religion. Yeah, it, it's floundering. It's, it's a floundering experience. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting, too, when you mentioned the, uh, the you know, because, like, you, you can go meet somebody. I you know, like, when I was in Taiwan, being able to meet people and, like, have dinner with this, you know, it's total strangers. But it's it's weird because it's you, you don't, you, you need to be this idea of what the organization has as a good person. And not like who you are. Like you, it, it's like whenever you meet somebody, you like have a checklist of like how good of a person are they that you like then provide mm. to like you know. And even when I think that's a huge thing with dating people, or you know, whenever I, I remember as a witness, and this goes across many different religions, but you know, it's like, well, what do you like about the person? As a witness, you'd be like, I really love like how they go on service, you know, twice a week or whatever. It's like only just <laughs> You're comparing them like um, this list that you're given instead of like real characteristics about them and their their faults and their their good things. I think that is a uh, pardon my French, I guess, but it's such a mind fuck. Once you start realizing that you can like enjoy people for like so many, like it's just like wow, there's people are so amazing, you know. Of like, there's so yeah. much more to people than just like if they're going if they miss Sunday meeting or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you pig you pigeonhole them into like five categories of people that are allowed to exist in the organization. Yeah, but, you know, and everybody's, this is the beauty of hearing other opinions that you miss out on with these thought terminating cliches that occur. Uh, if any, ever time, every time the conversation gets a little dangerous, a little bit like has the um, potential for some conflict, you know, you'll hear something like, well, you know, God's kingdom will take care of that. Or, well, at least uh, here, another one is, at least we have the truth. At least we have the organization instead of really hearing people for what they have to say. And for me, this, this infinite complexity in the world is beautiful, as you say. You know, when you learn people, not only what they like, but what they stand for, their opinions on things, it's such a, a way of expanding your viewpoint. And when it comes to sort of the work of humanity as a whole, you know, this, this has to be engendered for constructive progress in all social infrastructures. 
And yeah, it's, it's one, I think it's one of the beauties of awakening and getting out there and meeting people and, and putting yourself in, in, um, you know, uncomfortable situations. Uh, you have the risk of being changed yourself, but you also get to experience what people are and what they stand for. I, I guess that's actually a good kind of transition into, because I think we've talked about a lot of the conflicts and, you know, like what these like hard things, you know, how it affects our mental health to wake up and get out and how to survive. But also there is so much good that comes with it. And I, I'm curious for, from your experience, where are like some of the best things you have been able to experience and that you can like the good things you can focus on with waking up? Well, you know, what initially was hypervigilance to social influence has turned into a keen awareness of social influence, um, which has been particularly beneficial for me in other spheres of my life, be it business or what have you, where tactics of emotional manipulation and control and, and information control and things happen. Um, basically, your bullshit reader is like hyper-tuned. And so that that is one benefit. And as I mentioned before, previously, when we were talking about meaningful demonstrative change in depressive symptoms. Um, a, a group of, you know, a box of psychological tools now that I did not have before for taking care of my own well-being, mental health well-being. And uh, that has been extremely liberating. I found out, you know, a lot of things, as you say, when you're trying to discover who you are, a lot of surprising things in myself, surprising skills that I didn't know that I had, which are not dependent on anybody to tell me if they're good or not. They, they just exist. And I just know that they're there. And I don't need a community to reaffirm it for me. And in my moments of darkness, they are still there. And, you know, things like that have been beautiful. I will say, in those relationships that I have worked hard to maintain inside the organization, even with those ones, as I have been less reactive, I've noticed that I've sort of, I see people as individuals now. I don't see them as Jehovah's Witnesses. I see them as individuals. I can see the, the, the intricacies and the uniqueness of them, which uh, has helped to undo my own prejudice against Jehovah's Witnesses, which happened as a result of my disillusionment. And also, you know, slowly creating friendships at a, at a, at a deeper level. That's been, pretty, that's been pretty impressive. When you, you find people and you don't expect to like them, but you're intuitively drawn to them. And then you explore who they are. I feel like I have a deep sense of what real friendship and loyalty is. And I value it. I value people much more than I ever did. I value people so much more. Yeah, I think that, that, that's also with the how interesting people are, you know, it's such a huge thing of, cause it's like, even this thing of, I don't even have to really like somebody to like find them interesting now, you know, mm -hmm. like, you can disagree with them on a whole bunch of stuff, but you can still have a nice conversation and get something, you know, and build yourself from it, which I think was, is, doesn't really exist in the, in the old way of thinking. It's like, they're either good or bad and you talk yeah. to them if they're good and you don't if they're bad, mm -hmm. you know? And healing, healing from the wounds of the, of the guilt and shame too. Uh, you know, I didn't even know how much that was plaguing me and how much I was, I can't remember the psychological term right now, but when you project it to me, how much I was projecting that on other people, you know, my bitterness against my self-hatred, I was projecting on other people. And I know that it was making me a very difficult person to be around. And I understand that now. And I, I no longer feel that I am sinning or making a whole bunch of mistakes. And I don't mean to be arrogant, but, but when you get rid of these concepts of living up to a standard, 
And you recognize that there is no human standard. We're all just, you know, people trying to figure out this confusion of life. You no longer have to go around feeling terrible about things you may say or things you may do. I, it's morality is, is, is much more sort of expansive and understanding now. And that has yielded a piece that I didn't know before. No, just a piece that I intend to share. I was going to say a piece that I no longer share illusory hope, hope to share peace with others, any peace that I may have found. Yeah, no, that's, um, I think that's a, a great point because that's another big part of getting out is that can, I think, be super overwhelming of creating your own morality. You know, you don't just go by these certain rules anymore. You're nav- navigating the world on your own and it's, you know, way bigger than you expect. I think what, what's been your experience with, you know, crafting your, your own rights and wrongs and morality so that way, I don't know. It's such an interesting experience, especially like as a, as an adult, you know, you, as an adult, you're like, now I have to craft my, you know, my, mm-hmm. my rights and wrongs. And yeah. what's, what's been your experience to, to best be, deal with that? I've studied quite a bit in Eastern philosophy, as I can tell you have to Ashton, Taoism, Buddhism, mindfulness practice, uh, you know, Buddhist philosophy has a lot to do with deconstructing illusions of consciousness whether it's the concept of even having a self, you know, the concept of no self, and also the essences that we prescribe to everything, including good and bad, and time, you know, concepts of time. And mindfulness has really helped to, you know, try and understand exactly, you know, good and bad relies a lot on pre-prescribed standards. It also has to do with time in terms of what is good now and what is good later. It has a lot to do with cost and benefit analysis, you know, doing what some may consider to be, you know, hurtful now, which could have long-term benefits. I mean, it's really complicated to, as you say, do that with an adult mind, but um, the fluidity of Eastern tradition philosophy has helped rather than the sort of categorical nature of Western philosophy. And with mindfulness too, you have this distance from your thoughts. And that distance never existed before uh, when I was a Jehovah's Witness. Um, You just assumed your thoughts were coming from your soul or what have you. But with mindfulness, you step back and you look at it and you say, okay, what is this thought? What is this feeling? You start labeling your thoughts, labeling your feelings. You are able to disconnect the two. You're able to sit with your thoughts and explore them a little bit. And, you know, I, I got to the point where I really did deconstruct good and bad. And I start to see humans as simply behaving in a moment of time. Um, For me, I hope that in the long run, I will contribute more benefit than harm to others. And that's been a guiding force for me. Uh, But beyond that, there's, there's the gray area, which contributes to psychological health, but was disallowed in religious communities. Yeah, I think, I I mean, I love those concepts you bring up, the fluidity of Eastern practice that helps in the mindfulness that helps recover so much, just because I know, I think, especially as a, you know, I think Western way of thinking where we think of ourselves like as buildings, you know, every, every day we're like adding on to the building and building higher. And that's really risky when you're in a, a you know, a cult or religion like witnesses where now that building, it relies on that religion it relies on the people all these people in charge of you and you know if you get this fellowship it gets knocked down and so then to realize that there was no building if you just you know you see it as that river 
as I mentioned, where you're only here now and you, you can't always see where it's going to go, but it's, it's fluid, you know, and that's, I think, such a healing thought of being able to reconcile and understand who you are now is very different than who you were. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. I feel you. Yeah. I just was gonna, you know, as we kind of start to wrap it up, you know, as someone who is currently physically in and mentally out, you know, for the many others that are also going through that process, you know, what is kind of, what would be your suggestions, you know, for people who, you know, are staying in, but, you know, don't believe in the religion anymore? What's kind of been the way that you've been able to keep your sanity and keep pressing forward? Well, first of all, it's important to say, I have to put this disclaimer is that I don't recommend it, nor do I defend the stance that I'm in. It is simply mine for now. And I don't know what it will mean for me moving forward. But at the time that I'm writing a book and expressing myself and discussing and healing from my trauma, it's where I'm at. But I I would encourage others to just learn social influence, uh, learn the the dynamics of of social psychology, understand uh, persuasion, understand coercion, and also understand what your personal experience is and how your personal experience can stand separate from all of those elements and to explore and to learn and, and to find your place. And it may be outside and it may be inside, but there's no need to fear wherever you are. Uh, you are in control of you. You can be in control of you and uh, stay in that space. And hopefully, you know, it is my hope that we loosen some of these restrictions on people. Uh, I, you know, I would like to explore this concept further of, of captive policies and, and, illegality of them. It would be a beautiful thing to see families, you know, reconnected. And I don't give up that hope. And all I can do is write and speak. Uh, But I hope that one day we see something change. I was just going to say, you know, for this work that you're doing, and for people to, you know, support you and your book and things where, you know, can you just kind of tell us more about your book, what you're working on, where people can find it? Yeah, so um, the book is up on Amazon uh, starting August first. The ebook, the paperback, and um, you can also get pre-release teaser up at wallacebooks.com. Yeah, so I hope that others can can hear it, and others not not only in the witness ex witness world, but you know others that are concerned about you know the well being of of people that are involved here. And um, you know, right now I'm working on qualifying myself so I can help people uh, when it comes to mental health. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be an ongoing process. And, and I intend to explore it and write about it as I do. Um, you know, there's a lot of mystery in the future, but that mystery is, is beautiful. <laughs> it's a lot different than how my life used to be. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the What the Faith podcast. Music brought to you by Justin Kay. And as always, if you liked what you heard, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review for the podcast. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.